Welcome back to On the Middle East, our monitor's conversation with thought leaders on the big stories in the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and I'm lucky to have as my guest today Esther Solomon, editor-in-chief of the gutsy liberal Israeli daily Haaretz English. Esther and I discuss the latest developments in the conflict in Gaza as it enters its third month with ever deadlier twists. Most notable among them is the assassination, likely by Israel, of Hamas's number two man, Saleh al-Aruri, in Lebanon, where he was offered haven by the powerful Iran-backed Shia militia, Hezbollah. Just as our conversation unfolded, an attack on the tomb of the late IRGC al-Quds force commander, Qasem Soleimani, in the southeastern Iranian city of Kerman, left over at least 103 people dead adding to the spiral of violence which is threatening to engulf the region. Esther, welcome to our program. Thank you for making the time. I know how very busy you are at the moment. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, have we entered a new phase of this conflict with the assassination of Aruri in um, Lebanon? And what are the ramifications of this? Well, we're certainly still in the waiting period to see uh, what is actually going to happen. Definitely what happened yesterday, six o'clock in the afternoon, uh, threw up the cards somewhat. The question, it was obviously... Um, an opportunity that Israel's intelligence and defense uh, agencies decided was too good to miss after they had said from October the 7th onwards that basically all senior Hamas officials, whether they're in Gaza or outside, were basically dead men walking. So that was a decision that they must have taken because of intelligence that they were there in Beirut um without other civilians around and it was just an opportunity that they had to take now obviously it's a um a major issue for Hezbollah now who has been conducting a kind of deliberately low level uh campaign not quite moving into outright war with Israel on its northern border ever since October the 7th and Hezbollah have uh, a lot of reasons not to want to escalate, uh, although they have the issue of wanting and needing to show that they have some kind of response to the fact that this hit happened on their home turf. It couldn't have been uh, closer to home. And, you know, Hez the Hezbollah chief Nasrallah is speaking just in a few hours. His speeches are often very long, uh, <clears throat> and without uh, specific content. But, you know, there are noises that some kind of retaliation will take place, but it's not very uh, clear that Lebanon wants that kind of uh, escalation into war because it's obviously Lebanon that will pay the price as well. Um, but there's... But there's other issues as well, which is, you know, obviously Iran uh, has to, uh, has a clear uh, part in all of this, whether now is the time for that kind of escalation. Hezbollah has always 
you know, one of their key uh, proxy cards and they may well want to keep that powder dry for now. It's not necessarily exactly now that they want uh, everything to go, I won't say nuclear, but uh, certainly more uh, extreme than it is now. On the other hand, Israel is, is still facing this, you know, constant basically turning into a war of attrition on its northern border. And there are noisier and noisier voices within Israel that more must be done against Hezbollah. Well, there is always that sort of conspiracy theory, if that's what you want to call it, out there claiming that Israel actually wants to bait Iran into this war and wants the Americans, of course, to rise to their defense. Yeah, but, the, you know, the same kind of conspiracy theory could be said about uh, and has been already constructed about uh, the beginning of this war with Hamas as well, that Israel put down its defenses in order for Hamas to strike and therefore give grounds for Israel to destroy Gaza. This is uh, really very much in the realm of uh, very malign conspiracy theories indeed. So you don't believe that uh, Israel is interested in conflict with Iran? No, definitely. I don't think that Israel would invite uh, a conflict that uh, that would create enormous destruction, not at this point, certainly. I mean, Israel kind of holds to itself um, the right uh, to ensure that Iran doesn't uh, become a nuclear threat. Now, Iran is creeping pretty close towards that, but I don't think Israel has made the assessment that it is so imminent that it must be stopped right now. And so what we can fully expect in that case is Israel doing what it says it will do, which is to go after the Hamas leadership. And presumably uh, the leader, Sinwar, who's thought to be in Khan Yunis in Gaza. So um, a lot of effort concentrated on that, while I guess uh, the clashes will continue on the ground in Gaza too. Uh, but at the same time, obviously, international pressure mounting on Israel. How has this... Um, killing of Aruri uh, reverberated across Israel. Has it been a boost for Netanyahu, who is, who is admittedly under quite a bit of pressure domestically? Well, a boost for Netanyahu, I'm sure that, uh, you know, Israel traditionally does not take direct responsibility for foreign assassinations of this kind. So he can't exactly uh, use it in an election, in a re-election uh, advert. But um, his popularity ratings are so low that pretty much any democratically elected leader seeing them would you know want to run away somewhere uh, or hide their head in the sand but you know they are so low that um you know a, an achievement let's say of this kind is not going to make uh, any difference for that and i think it also raises the fundamental distinction that there is at the moment that uh, generally, there is significant national consensus in terms of the war on Hamas, but there is absolutely, uh, you know, approaching single digit figures confidence in the Prime Minister. So just for our audience to understand, on the one hand, of course, there is this anger that his government you know, failed to uh, foresee this attack and to take necessary measures to prevent it. But on the other hand, is it fair to say that no matter who would have been leading 
Israel at this time had such an attack occurred, the response would have been pretty much the same, that this is really existential for Israel. And that's a sort of broadly held consensus in Israeli politics society. Yes, I think that apart from uh, parties uh, more on the hard left and some of the Arab Jewish parties, there is definitely consensus that uh, the attack uh, on October the 7th would require, you know, uh, a massive response that would in some ways try and re-establish deterrence and to ensure that there is no going back to the status quo because the status quo basically means the capacity of Hamas to do another October the 7th. So, yes, I think that there, is, um, there isn't uh, a huge spectrum of debate, but there is you know, growing debate about uh, the extent of uh, the damage and loss of lives in Gaza. And there is a very, very strong public campaign by the families of the hostages that are still being held in uh, by Hamas in Gaza, saying that um, the bombardments endanger those hostages, the lack of a ceasefire uh, endangers those hostages, and extraterritorial uh, maneuvers and assassinations by Israel certainly doesn't help their family members come home either. Not to forget that al Arori was you know, quite a key figure in some of these, uh, in the latest round of ceasefire negotiations. Of course, uh, the sort of irony is that he was also, as you said, a key figure in those negotiations. So does him dying sort of put them in peril? I mean, where do we go from here? What what do you foresee? What awaits Israel? That's quite a frightening question. I don't really put myself out as a prophet. But um, at the moment, since his assassination, the ceasefire talks are formally on hold. Now, bearing in mind, there's the public narrative and there's what's actually happening behind the scenes. Uh, I couldn't actually say if that actually means that there really isn't dialogue going on because there's dialogue going on. On so many in so many different geographical locations and on different levels we know you know in Egypt in Qatar in various European cities as well uh, I find it hard to believe that there is uh, a complete freeze on anything on the other hand we still don't know what the Hamas uh, response Islamic Jihad Hezbollah responses will be but there does certainly I mean, the reason that Hamas was in any way interested in a ceasefire still holds that they want some kind of time out to um, assess their losses uh, and, uh, and and stop the, the active warfare for a bit. Another paradox of this conflict uh, is the fact that um, none of the countries with which uh, Israel, you know, established uh, diplomatic relations, I mean, UAE, Bahrain, etc., have really had any beef in this, any role, whereas Qatar, uh, who's been holding out, has had an outsized role. What does this say about the future of um, these efforts to normalize with, uh, you know, neighbors? Uh, And and what's the takeaway? Have these Abraham Accords been good for Israel? Or maybe the opposite, that they maybe help spur or accelerate 
this attack. Well, I'm not sure if they helped spur it, but really, listen, the a clear part of uh, the um, the reasoning behind the Abraham Accords, especially for Netanyahu, but also on the part of the Gulf countries in question, was a way of uh, bypassing or sidelining the Palestinian question. Um, and, you know, all sides without some with nicer words or, you know, we do care or we'll we'll deal with that. Uh, we're pushing, we're going into this alliance so that we can have more leverage over Israel. I mean, really in practice, nothing much of that happened during the time that the Abraham Accords um were beginning in since um but to say that it's had no impact uh since october some yes okay there have been strongly worded denunciations um there have been ambassadors who've been recalled for talks but if you compare what you would have predicted the gulf reaction to have been in the absence of the Abraham Accords and how they have been now, I think there is a significant difference. Um, you know, there's still talk that Saudi Arabia might still be interested in uh, coming to some kind of uh, agreement with Israel, which seems uh, difficult to imagine now. But, you know, the reasons that these countries went into the Abraham Accords were extremely cold and pragmatic. And it's all to do with you know post oil econ economies. It's to do with Iran. On the it's to do with you know a whole a whole spectrum of things, not only uh, and not really including the Palestinians. Yes, what has happened now? The Israel uh, Hamas war has made the Palestinian issue erupt onto world headlines, and you know saying we can't. This issue has been uh, sidelined for too long, and it doesn't just go away because you're not talking about it. But on the other hand, the, those cold pragmatic reasons for the Abraham Accords still exist. And uh, I think that in a strange way, this war has shown that they are, uh, they have some stamina. That's, that's probably true. Uh, but still, there's so many moving parts to this where you have uh, Saudi Arabia trying to make peace in Yemen, and that being uh, jeopardized by what's going on with the Houthis attacking these uh, these uh, ships, uh, commercial vessels uh, in the Red On the other hand, the Saudis have, have knocked down some of their missiles and uh, that have been launched. So going towards Israel, even so, mm -hmm. that's that's also quite interesting and, and speaks to what you said about the durability and the potential for the Abraham Accords to sort of. Uh, be consolidated right although the kind of trans-regional um defense understandings if not agreements you know have existed and do exist independently of actually official normalization um turning back again to israel and your newspaper uh it's come under a lot of criticism for its for its stance uh, on covering this war and has traditionally, in fact, uh, certainly from our very right-wing um, circles and with the communications minister accusing you of sabotaging Israel in wartime. 
Uh, do you are you under a lot of pressure, and and how does it manifest itself? Well, on the one hand, Haaretz is used to being a bit of a lone voice, if not a lonely voice, because um, from a much more diverse media landscape, we're pretty much the only uh, newspaper that uh, proudly uh, pins the word uh, liberal democracy and uh, two-state solution and anti-occupation to its mast. So, you know, there used to be more space for that, and now uh, we uh, inhabit most of that space. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we also um, recognise that uh, the government is interested in inciting uh, against both those values and about and against us in particular. Um, so yes, that was very unpleasant when the minister in charge of communications uh, made threats against us. But we don't, uh, we haven't felt um, any tangible um, uh, threats in terms of our freedom to operate on the other you know in some ways for especially for the far right but also for the right wing in this government we're a useful straw man for them that they can always use to to spar against so I'm sure they would miss us if we weren't here but have any of your reporters been threatened with violence I mean I'm not just talking about government pressure but you know any nasty public reaction i would say that there was more um civil uh, uh threats of violence in the air during the pro-democracy protest movement which obviously came to a pretty sudden end on october the 7th uh because that was a period where it really felt, felt like israel was about to slide into civil war and the smell of violence in the air was getting stronger and stronger, also from the police uh, and also from uh, right wings on the streets. Uh, now I don't uh, see immediately at this point that that's, that that's a major threat. Oh, finally, I mean, after October 7th and that masthead, do you still believe in it? Do you still believe it's realistic? How and and I I would ask you personally, how, how are you sort of coming to terms with everything you believed in in the aftermath of, of all these awful things that have happened, and continue to happen? It's a very uh, that's a very hard question, um, and I'm not sure that anyone who gave who can give a very complete and eloquent answer to it. Um, uh, has really thought it through, I have to say. Um, I think that on the one hand, there is no doubt that people who put enormous faith in building peace from the grassroots upwards uh, have su suffered a huge blow because it was many of those <clears throat> people themselves who were targeted by Hamas in the kibbutzim on Israel's border. Um, and not just because of that, in a more, you know, in a more uh, meta way, the idea that there is going to be any kind of broad 
public support um, for uh, compromise seems very far away. On the other hand, <clears throat> we know from from history sometimes uh, enormous shocks can lead to a realignment of political and social forces. So if I didn't have some kind of optimism, it would be very hard uh, to start each day afresh. And listen, quite practically, Israel has this extraordinarily uh, intense military campaign in Gaza. But right from the start, the question that was not sufficiently <clears throat> answered but the United States is and others are demanding an answer to more and more is what's going to happen afterwards. And that what happens afterwards nece necessarily involves some kind of rethinking of political solution. Uh, you know, I would hope that that could be some kind of spur towards much more serious discussions about a two-state solution, but it's going to require uh, very... Uh, sensitive and clever packaging for the majority of Israelis who are somewhere in the center. And it will obviously uh, be confronted with very, very noisy opposition from the right and the far right, many of whom sit in this current government. But it's fair to say that the status quo uh, October 7th ante was just not a sustainable one. We were we were saying that for, for a lot of time, that there is no such thing as a status quo. Things don't just, you know, there is no such thing as everyone just living in some kind of frozen animation. Things were, you know, there was a deterioration uh, of living conditions of all kinds of issues on the West Bank. Also, there was a deterioration uh, in terms of, Palestinian uh, rights and lives. So there is absolutely no way that any um, Israeli government could survive by pushing the idea that things will go back to where they were. In fact, you know, that's against the stated aims of the war itself. Unfortunately, in terms of a vision for what that would mean, uh, Netanyahu is not the person who is ever going to be able to offer something like that. I guess the greatest hope going forward, and people get very upset with me when I say this, particularly since October 7th, that for better or for worse, Israel is a democracy. And uh, we saw that in play again on January 1st, when the higher courts struck down that effort to curb its powers uh, that were, you know, being pushed by Netanyahu to protect himself. So... Well, well I mean, it was, it was a very bittersweet moment for for all of us because we had been obviously uh following the the pro-democracy movement and this specific supreme court uh judgment you know day by day hour by hour um and then the war happened and then suddenly just days ago we heard that the judgment was going to be handed down um and really, it was a smack, a smack across the face for Netanyahu and all the would-be authoritarians in his government um, and their attempt to uh, defang the Supreme Court, its capacity to uh, conduct ju uh, judicial review. 
which all sounds very dry, but actually has quite dramatic, it would have had very dramatic uh, impact on the lives of all the sisters of Israel and of Palestinians as well in the West Bank. So, yes, it was a moment of uh, satisfaction, but it's very difficult to find um, any satisfaction really um, in a true sense uh, at a time of war. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and stay safe and hopefully we'll speak in more peaceful times very soon. I hope for that too. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of this episode of On the Middle East. I wish all of you a very happy, healthy and hopefully peaceful new year. Don't forget to check out our website www.al-monitor.com for in-depth coverage of the Middle East. Thank you and goodbye. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.